come to the point in the service where we get to hear God's word read aloud, but we're reading it corporately together. Please stand and turn your Bibles to Psalms, the book of Psalms. We're going to be reading Psalm 2 in its entirety, Psalm 2, 1 through 12. Prepare your hearts to hear the word of the Lord as written in Psalm 2, 1 through 12. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree that Yahweh said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. May God's word be blessed to you this day. Please, uh, please be seated. Please pray with me this morning. Not to us, O God, not to us, but to you be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. May we behold your steadfast love and your faithfulness in your word this day, and may you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I may be dating myself, but there are probably a number of you here who have played or at least have heard of the game, King of the Mountain or King of the Hill. To play it, you, know, you choose players and you try to get the best people on your team, and then you all strategize and figure out how you're going to dislodge or capture this hill and keep others from dislodging you. So there are two teams, and obviously there are two outcomes. Either you're on the winning team, the team that captures, controls, and successfully defends the designated hill, or you're on the losing team and you control nothing. Last time I preached, we looked at Psalm 1, and we asked ourselves which of the two possible paths presented there we were traveling. The path of the righteous that leads to blessing and fruitfulness and to life, or the path of the unrighteous that led to fruitlessness, to perishing, and to ultimate destruction. Today, we continue our journey through the book of Psalms by looking at Psalm 2, which our brother just read for us, which brought to my mind this game of king of the mountain only being played out on a cosmic scale. It presents two distinct teams, um, as it were, the Lord and his anointed and those on their team and the nations and their kings and those allied with them. And these two distinct paths, as with the two distinct paths of Psalm 1, the two distinct teams and their futures and fortunes presented here in Psalm 2 are also drastically different. Before looking at the text, I want to first mention um, several background type notes. First, Psalm 2 is the first psalm 
example in the Psalter of a category psalm known as the Royal Psalms, or you may have heard term Coronation Psalms. Royal Psalms are primarily concerned with the human kings of Judah and their understanding of themselves as uniquely authorized and empowered by Yahweh as his adopted sons. Secondly, as it relates to authorship, even though Psalm 2 does not have a superscript before it that denotes the author, designates the author, we will see as we go through this sermon today, the New Testament ascribes this book to King David. And thirdly, as mentioned last time when looking at Psalm 1, there are many points of contact between these, two, these first two psalms, and many consider them to be taken together as an introduction to the book of Psalms, and today we'll look at a number of those points of contact between these two psalms. So turning to Psalm 2 proper this morning, I want us to consider which team are each one of us personally on, the team of Yahweh and his anointed, or the team of the nations and their kings and peoples. Beginning with verses 1 through 3, we see an international conspiracy. We read in verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The first thing we recognize in this is that this psalm begins with a rhetorical question. Why? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? As we continue through the psalm, we will see why it is indeed a rhetorical question. We see the nations of the earth, that is, all the nations other than Israel, raging. And the word here for raging can also be translated thronging, being in an uproar, being in a tumultuous state, or being in rebellion. In other words, the non-Israelite nations are all stirred up. And what are they going to do in this state? We read... The peoples of those nations are devising or plotting a vain thing. So here in this first verse, we have our first connection back to Psalm 1. The word that we saw in Psalm 1, verse 2, for meditate, as you may remember, we pointed out it was the Hebrew word haggah, which had the sense of imitating the sound of low voices, murmuring or muttering as one reads scripture in a low undertone. Here it has a sense of to plan or to plot or to conspire. So we see the stark contrast between the blessed man in Psalm 1 who delights in and meditates or haggahs on the word of God of the Lord and those here who haggah to plot and conspire and rebel against that word of the Lord. We also see in this first verse that all this plotting, the uproar, the attempted rebellion is described as what? A vain thing. It's emptiness. It will amount to nothing. They're all meditating. What they're meditating on is vanity. So from the first verse, we see that these nations and their peoples will not succeed despite their noisy, tumultuous, evil plotting. Moving to verse 2, we read, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Here we see the kings of the earth choosing their teams, as it were, picking the best who will go to battle with them against Yahweh and his anointed. They're taking counsel together, coming up with their best strategy that they believe will be able to enable them to win against Yahweh and his anointed. There's no particular event in history that this psalm is tied to. The language describes all or any nations in history that do not acknowledge Israel or Israel. Israel's God or his anointed king. 
We see that these kings and rulers set themselves, which can have the sense of stationing or standing or taking one stand against. Here they do this against Yahweh and against his anointed. This international worldwide alliance of kings and rulers are deceiving themselves into thinking that they can stand against the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. How laughable is that? Well, we'll see in the coming verse. And who is this that is called his anointed, or in Hebrew, Mashiach or Messiah? Even though the ESV and the NASV have capital A, anointed, other versions such as NIV and the King James have lowercase a, anointed. Most commentators agree that at the time of the writing of this psalm by David, the Israelites hearing the word anointed would have naturally thought uh, it to be King David or one of his descendants. One commentator puts it very succinctly when he states, the psalm is obviously a kingship psalm, speaking of the divine king as well as his anointed, the designated human king. In its Old Testament context, Psalm 2 likely functioned as a psalm that accompanied the inauguration of the divinely appointed Davidic heir who occupied the throne in Jerusalem. As part of the ceremony, he was anointed, that is, the priest would pour oil on his head in a ceremony that symbolized his divine authorization and empowerment for the office, end quote. As time went on, however, and one Davidic king after another failed to fulfill the prophecies of the anointed one or to walk in obedience to Yahweh, the Jews came to realize that the, the anointed this verse was looking forward to was a greater son of David, a true Messiah, which we know, who have the, the New Testament, realizes the Lord Jesus Christ, the Greek word for Christ being anointed. He being the true anointed prophet, priest, and king. We read of his fulfillment of this in Acts chapter 4. If you would, please turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 23. Following Peter and John's release after being jailed by the council, we read this in Acts 4, 23 through 28. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Doesn't this sound like kings and rulers and peoples, we see how these verses of our psalm came to be seen, and rightly so, as looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Here also, as I mentioned, is where we see that this psalm is attributed to, to King David. Moving on to verse 3, we see the intent of the rebellion. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. When the Hebrew speaks of bonds and cords here, the picture is that of two oxen yoked together, tied together. Considering, again, the interconnectedness between Psalms 1 and 2, it allows us to recognize that bonds and cords that the rulers want to forcefully, even violently, and burst apart and cast away 
are the laws and regulations, the life-giving guidance that God has given us in his law, as we saw when we considered Psalm 1. These rulers and people see themselves as in bondage or shackled by Yahweh and his anointed and his law. They intend to throw off all constraints and enjoy what they deem to be freedom. What is this thinking? It's nothing less than the age-old delusion of Satan to portray God and his good laws and restrictions as holding back mankind from being all that they can be, from being truly safe, truly free. I say age-old because we see it as far back as the Garden of Eden. We read this in Genesis uh, chapter 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you, t- neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. So we see here the serpent. God's holding you back. Go ahead, take and eat, and you'll be wise. But we don't see anything of this mentality in the world around us today, do we? (laughs) I think you would agree with me that we absolutely see this thinking all around us. This was made abundantly clear to those of us who participated in the recent Sunday school class based on the Carl Truman book, Strange New World. We are living among a whole generation of people who want nothing less than to cast off all vestiges of God's morality, God's law, objective truth, authority, and to do as we read in Judges 21:25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Doing what is right in our own eyes, what's right for them, and will supposedly allow them to be all that they can be, or truthfully, all that they want to be. We saw that this will lead ultimately to disappointment and ruin. We also see, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, and states in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been is what will be, what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. But we also saw in that Sunday school class there was an antidote. The birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And we need to be those who are sharing this antidote with the world around us as we have opportunity. But bringing it closer to home, for now put aside the world out there, what about right here in our own hearts? Do we personally harbor some of this mentality ourselves? Do we secretly or even openly accept lies of Satan that God's laws and requirements are too confining, too restrictive, keeping me from being all I was meant to be or all that I want to be? If so, we're siding with the wrong team, the losing team, and we need to repent and to proclaim the antidote, the the gospel, to ourselves. And as we recognize repeatedly in Psalm 1, we recognize here as well that the Lord Jesus Christ is our supreme example. He not only never complained about the laws of his father being too strict, too confining, keeping him from being all that he could be, what we see instead. He not only willingly and perfectly obeyed all the commands and laws of his father, not only in letter but in spirit, 
but he delighted in doing so. And in fact, we have the Lord Jesus in speaking to his disciples in John 4, saying that doing the will of his Father was so much a part of his life that it was like food to him. In John 4, 32 through 34, we read, But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. May we strive to be more like our supreme example in walking and delighting to walk in obedience. Moving on to verses 4 through 6, we see the divine response. Beginning in verse 4, we read, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. So in contrast to the puny kings and rulers ruling in their own nations on earth, we see the Lord sits where? In the heavens. As Pastor Nick has shown us in preaching through the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel had many so-called gods who were associated with it. These were local gods, as it were. They ruled, their rule and influence was in the land of Egypt. We see the same idea as the Israelites were entering the promised land. The nations that they were to drive out each had their own local god. But here the picture given by the phrase sits in the heavens is that the Lord God is the ultimate sovereign enthroned in heaven and will rule over all the nations of the earth. As such, he's not unaware of what these kings and rulers are plotting in their ignorance and arrogance. He knows exactly what they're up to and laughs at their intents and holds them in derision. The verb laughs has a sense of to laugh at, to joke at, to muse at, to scorn. And the verb derision here carries a more serious sense of to deride, to jeer, to mock, and to scoff at, and to hold in contempt. So here we have another connection back to Psalm 1. As one commentator aptly puts it, scoffers sit in their seats, as we saw in Psalm 1, verse 1, and concoct impossible strategies to throw off the Creator's yoke, which we just read in the first three verses of this psalm, while Yahweh sits enthroned in the heavens, impervious to their attack, scoffing right back at those who think so little of him. End quote. And we see this in the next verse, verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... Here we see God's laughter and scoffing gives way to his speaking to them in wrath. His words confront head-on the words of the kings of the earth in verse 3. The Hebrew noun here, wrath, ap, can have a range of meanings from anger to breath to even nostrils. Thus, we have the picture of God breathing or snorting through flared nostrils in anger. And coupled with the noun fury, haron, which comes from the word for burn, we see the reason that the kings and rulers of the earth are terrified. Due to their attempted rebellion and arrogance toward him, the sovereign Lord of all, is addressing them in his blazing rage. And they recognize that, rutro, they have gone too far. They have aroused the holy sovereign against themselves. And we know from the creation account in Genesis 1 and from other places in Scripture, such as Psalm 33, 9, that when God speaks, he acts. In Genesis 1, he spoke and it came into being. In Psalm 33, what God spoke came to pass and stood firm. So how is God going to act in this case? 
Moving on to verse 6, we read what God spoke to them in his fury and wrath and what action he took. Verse 6, as for me, I have set, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He says, I've had it with you puny kings and rulers and your people and your attempted coup against me. And I'm sending a regiment of my holy angelic warriors to destroy every last one of you. Right? Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said at all. To my shame, knowing my heart, that's probably what I would have done. It was in my power to do so. But no, that's not how God responds. He's merciful. He does not give these rebels what they deserve. In fact, in coming verses, we will see he even extends grace to them. May we be more like our merciful and gracious God in our dealings with those around us, in our families, in our church, in the world around us. What then is God's response? A paraphrase might be, irrespective of what you may try to do in all your bluster and arrogance, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And as we see in coming verses, this reference to a singular king clearly and divinely installed in his office alludes to the Jerusalem dynasty of the Davidic kings. One commentator aptly says it this way, The Lord neither negotiates with rebels nor adjusts himself to suit their demands, but simply reaffirms his royal plan. His king is installed. That's the end of the matter. Just as in Genesis 3, the great rebellion did not alter divine sovereignty one iota, end quote. I don't know about you, but this brought to my mind Psalm 115, verses 2 and 3. Why should the nation say, where is our God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Indeed, he does all that he pleases. For those of us in Christ, this should be a great source of comfort and encouragement to us as we go through our, the trials of our lives and see the chaos and evil all around us, sometimes seemingly to be winning. We know it's all an illusion from the evil one and that there is only one winning team. That's the team of Yahweh and his anointed and those who are on it. Please consider with me again, can you and I confidently say, this is the team I'm on, the team of Yahweh and his anointed? Moving on to verses 7 through 9, we see the covenant kingship proclaimed. In verse 7, I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. First question you might have is what is the decree that is referenced here? We know from history that this decree was a document given to the Israelite king during his coronation ceremony. It was his copy of the covenant document designating the renewing or the continuing of God's covenant relationship with the Davidic kingly line. And from the next phrase, Yahweh said to me, we see that this document contained the words of Yahweh to successive Davidic kings. It's the covenant language which the prophet Nathan delivered to Yahweh, from Yahweh to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 11b. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in 11b. Yahweh declares to you, Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He is the one who will build a house for a name, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Here we see the kind of relationship that will exist between Yahweh and the Davidic kings, that of a father to a son. You are my son. As one commentator comment, one author comments, this, this sonship language suggests that the king from David's line has taken up the role of Adam, the son of God. The father-son relationship also establishes the king from David's line as Israel's representative. For as we have seen at the Exodus, Yahweh denominated Israel as his firstborn son. When Yahweh names the Davidic king his son, he makes him his Adamic vice-regent, the representative of the nation of Israel, the individual seed of the woman who stands for the collective, the one who will reign in Yahweh's own image and likeness, establishing Yahweh's dominion over all creation, end quote. This is the ideal outcome, but we who have the completed canon, we know that this ideal was not realized by Adam, nor Israel, by, or nor by any of the Davidic kings. However, this talk of sonship should cause all kinds of hyperlinks to go off in our memory, pointing to the greater son, capital S, of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, such as the words of the angel to Mary prior to Jesus' birth in Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Or the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or the testimony of God the Father following Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Or following Jesus' transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. Or in Hebrews 1, where the supremacy of God's Son is delineated. Please turn to me in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be a father to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And in verse 8 of this same chapter we read, But of the son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So we know that where Adam and Israel, the nation of Israel and the Davidic kings all failed, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect son, has succeeded. He is the ideal realized. Let us praise and worship him this day and every day. Moving on to verse 8, we read, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The relationship of the Davidic king as the son of Yahweh carried with it special privileges and authority. And since the father here encourages his son to ask for these things, he surely will give them to him willingly. These were not, however, to be demanded, but requested from the father in humble reliance upon him. And what is he to ask of the father? The nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. Normally, the word here for heritage or inheritance is used to describe the allotments of land in the promised land to the Israelite tribes, or maybe the whole nation of the promised land to the nation of Israel. But here, regarding the Davidic kings, it is expanded to extend to all nations to the end of the earth. Essentially, the Father is promising universal dominion over all creation. So much for the aspirations of the kings of the earth in verses 1 through 3. Not only are their hopes dashed, but the kingdom they oppose and hope to overthrow is destined to what? Cover the whole earth. The Hebrew verb, which the phrase your possession here is derived from, has a sense of to lay hold of or to seize. And thus the father is saying that he will enable the son to take back by force the dominion of the whole world from the rulers of this world. When we read here of making the nations the heritage of the Son and the ends of the earth, his possession again, it should trigger our memories. What were Adam and the nation of Israel to do? Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and to multiply and to extend the borders of the Garden of Eden to fill the whole world with God's image bearers. We know they disobeyed the command of Yahweh, were expelled from the Garden, and the evil one took possession of the lands and the nations of the earth. Likewise, the nation of Israel, after having, been, having received the land promised to Abraham in Genesis 12:7, they were to be fruitful and to multiply and expand the borders of the land to fill the whole world with the glory of the Lord. But how did that turn out? Rather than obeying, Israel rebelled and was thrust out of the promised land. Thus, both Adam and the nation of Israel failed miserably to fulfill Yahweh's intent for them. So if the hopes of mankind were based wholly upon the performance of Adam and the nation of Israel, we would be wholly without hope. But as we continue to read the Old Testament, we see that the, the earthly Davidic kings failed miserably as well. But here, in this verse, we have a decree from Yahweh that he will raise up a king from David's line who will ultimately succeed in reclaiming the nations, possessing the ends of the earth, and extending his glory throughout it, in a sense, in, in an essence, restoring the Eden-like kingdom. And we know from the New Testament this king to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished while here on earth and what he will accomplish when he returns in triumph. 
It has been decreed by the sovereign Lord of the universe. We can take it to the bank. May this also be a great source of comfort to us today, living in this chaotic, sin-cursed world. This brings us to verse 9, where we read, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here we see the fate of the rebellious nations if they persist in their rebellion. They will be broken with a rod of iron and dashed to pieces by the Son, Yahweh's anointed, whom he has installed to rule on his holy mountain. The verb break here has the sense of to ruin or to devastate something. Another meaning of the word for rod that we see in this verse could be scepter. It's the same word used in Genesis 49.10 where Isaac is blessing his son Judah. Where we read, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And in Numbers 24:17, in Balaam's final oracle, where he blessed Israel rather than cursing them, we read, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So we see here in verses 8 and 9 of our psalm, Yahweh decreeing to fulfill the blessings to Judah in um, Genesis 49:10 and to the nation of Israel in Numbers 24:17, And ultimately in the crushing of the forehead of Moab and the breaking down of the sons of Sheth, that the seed of the servant will be crushed, as was promised in Genesis 3.15. The decree is made, but the identity of this son is unknown to the readers at the time of this writing. The Jews of the time would naturally have thought it to be the earthly son of David, but we know how that played out as it went on. It did not. For we, however, are blessed to have the New Testament. We read in Revelation 19.15, of whom, whom him who will come in, riding a white horse, the one who is called faithful and true, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. Revelation 19.15 reads, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Not only that, but we read these words from the Son of God, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, to the church in Thyatira. In Revelation 2, 26 and 27, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen, as with, when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So we, he, we see here the same language of having authority over the nations, ruling them with a rod of iron, and breaking them to pieces as earthenware pots. But here it's addressed to the church. It's addressed to us. If we overcome and remain faithful to the end, the Father's will that not only will his Son rule in this way, but the church will also reign as joint heirs with the Son. How cool is that? Isn't our God an amazing God? <laughs> Amen. Again, we must consider which team are we personally on? The team of Yahweh and his anointed who will rule with authority and power 
the rebellious nations with a rod of iron, or the team of the rebellious nations who are, by contrast, like frail, fragile potter's vessels who will be dashed to pieces in the judgment to come. This brings us to the final pericope, verses 10 through 12, the final warning to the rulers. We see in these verses, these closing verses of the psalm, the amazing graciousness of our God. Beginning in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warmed, O rulers of the earth. In case the kings and peoples of the nations were too dense to get the implications of what he just spoke to them in verses 5 through 9, God graciously and explicitly tells them to wise up or gain understanding or obtain a right perspective on their situation. And he tells them to be warned or accept instruction or correction or rebuke. But lest we think in our hearts in reading this that God is too gracious, he's gone too far. I wish he would have just let them go along and suffer the judgment that they deserve. Let me remind us how much we were at one time like them, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, lest like the rest of mankind. Is not the grace that was extended to each one of us just as great as God extends to the kings and the peoples here in these, and the nations in this verse? And if we think about it, isn't the grace that we have received even greater as we were living in our sin despite having the completed canon, the scriptures that they did not have? Are we not so very thankful that our God is indeed such a gracious God? May we likewise be a gracious people. Moving on to verse 11, we read, Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. How then are they to demonstrate that they are being wise and have heeded the warning? First, by serving Yahweh with fear or revering him, reverencing him. We know from verses such as Proverbs 1.7 and Psalm 111 verse 10, where we read, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And where do we learn how to serve and fear Yahweh? In his holy word. So we're brought right back to Psalm 1. Those who would demonstrate wisdom are those who delight in and meditate on the word of God. Secondly, they're to demonstrate that they are being wise and have heeded the warning by rejoicing with trembling. These two actions might seem incongruous at first, rejoicing with trembling. And yet, um, if you think about it, would it not be a reason to rejoice in realizing that they, even though rebelling, have not been destroyed? And yet, simultaneously, would it not be a reason for trembling that the sovereign God of the universe is aware of their plotting and that he has addressed them directly in verses 5 through 9, where he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury and pronounces his divine decree against them. I believe there is every reason to experience both rejoicing and trembling here. This brings us to the closing verse of this psalm. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
We see here how, further how the kings and peoples of the nations are to demonstrate that they are being wise and heeding the warning they receive. They are to kiss the son that was the object of the declaration of sonship in verse 7. To serve Yahweh with fear is to pay homage to, to submit to the rule of his son, the earthly Davidic king. To fail to do so will result in dire consequences. That is, they're coming under the quickly kindled anger of the Lord, which will result ultimately in their perishing in their way. So this verse again should immediately take us back to Psalm 1, where the language, same language is used to describe the fate of the wicked who do not delight in the law of Yahweh and so perish in their way. This brings us to the last phrase of Psalm 2, Blessed are those all who take refuge in him. Again, we immediately recognize a link back to Psalm 1. The word used here in the last verse of Psalm 2 for blessed is the same Hebrew word used in Psalm 1, verse 1, thus forming an inclusio around the two psalms. Thus here, as in Psalm 1, the one who takes refuge in the Lord will experience a state of happiness that flows from a sense of well-being and rightness, an Eden-like existence that includes a harmonious relationship with God and humanity. And just as when we looked at Psalm 1, we recognized that as poetic literature, the Psalms often present life in an idealistic light. But even though idealistic, it is completely accurate nonetheless. Those who submit to the Lord's authority and serve him and his king will surely be blessed, whereas those who stubbornly rebel against the Lord's authority and his king will surely perish in their way. We know by our experiences that this is true only partially in this life, but by faith we can be confident that it will be true fully, ideally, at the return of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In conclusion, in today's psalm, the kings and peoples of the nations have been charged to choose which team they are on. There can be only one king of the mountain. Will they remain among this rebellious throng, plotting an overthrow, and so perish under the wrath of God? Or will they submit to the authority to, of and serve Yahweh and his son and be blessed? Each one of us here is being called to answer the same question personally today. Boys and girls, please look up here. I have something for you to hear. You know when you play games, if your mommy and daddy are playing, you want them to be on your team, right? That way they can help you, they can teach you, and they love being on your team. Well, as you grow older, it will be more important than anything that you are on another team. Do you know what that team is? It's God's team with his son, Jesus, by obeying his commands and trusting Jesus to save you from your sins. Ask your mommy and daddy to, about this team. They'd love to tell you, help, tell you about it, help you learn more about this team more than anything else. And you know what? It's the only winning team. <laughs> On a more somber note, for those here who are outside of Christ who willfully refuse to serve the Lord or submit to his authority and the authority of his son, the Lord Jesus, you may fear what rulers or other men can physically do to you during your lifetime, even fear for your life, and that is a legitimate fear in this crazy times that we live. 
But if you persist in your rebellion, there's something infinitely greater to fear. That's the certain just judgment and wrath of the Lord of the universe. We have this judgment spoken of in Matthew 26, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Physical death is one thing, but suffering destruction of both your body and soul eternally in hell is what will await you if you do not turn, repent of your rebellion, and look to the Lord Jesus by faith as your Savior, Redeemer, and Refuge. As one commentator put it, there is no refuge from him, only in him. I plead with you to make him your refuge today. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, in examining ourselves today, have we in any measure given in to the lie of seeing God's laws and requirements as too confining, too restrictive, keeping us from being all we were meant to be, rather than seeing them rightly as imparting wisdom and being joyously freeing? If so, repent with me of these thoughts and let each of us seek to display our allegiance to Yahweh and his Son by serving them with reverential fear and obeying their law and in so doing enjoy the blessing of freely, joyously, and wisely serving and reigning on their forever team. Amen. Please pray with me. Our God, we pray that you would indeed help us to see a right, have a right perspective on our lives here, that you would give us that desire to show you the holy reverence and fear that you are due, that you would give us the desire to obey you, that you would help us not to listen to the lies of the evil one, but that we would joyously and with gratitude love in your word, delight in your word, meditate on your word, serve you, that we might ultimately be blessed, that we might be found on the right team. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.